listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. you to make your way to Romans chapter 11. As we have already heard this morning, that's what we will be camping out. And so we are reaching the end of Romans chapter 11, the last couple of verses in this chapter, but it is uh, coming at the end of really uh, three chapters worth of uh, Paul's explanation of God's salvific work through the course of history and time, specifically to both the Jewish people and now through the covenant of Jesus Christ available to all people. And so there has been this continuation, and we can't uh, rehash the previous five weeks we've spent in all those chapters, but just know uh, there is uh, things that preceded these verses where we will pick up this morning. And it is interesting, I I think in my own mind, in my own heart, to uh, view the salvation God has offered to humanity as a history that has been unfolded. And so we would get that within the narrative of Scripture. And if you've spent time within the Bible or just in church in general, you know uh, there is this way God has revealed his plan to his creation. And so we know about the Old Testament. We know about the people of Israel that God, you know, chose this guy, Abraham. He said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And God began unfolding this plan to them on how he was going to save them and and be his people. And we know the, the culmination of that reality is the person of Jesus Christ. That when God contained himself to human form and came and lived a perfect life on this earth and sacrificed himself on behalf of the sins of mankind, it just kicked the door open for all people. And that's the reality we have been talking about specifically as both Jewish people who have the heritage of the Old Testament, but then Gentile people who did not grow up with the Abrahamic God, but have now been brought into faith in Jesus Christ, they are trying to live out this reality together in this incredible institution, movement, group of people that we call the church. And that's who Paul is writing to. He's writing to these believers, both Jews and non-Jews, in the city of Rome, and has been explaining this reality to them because there has been conflict that has has arisen between these two groups because one has all this history and a a culture associated with it and uh, norms that they inherited from their ancestors. And and then another group is kind of coming from the outside and they're just grabbing the essentials that they can have salvation, they can have peace, they can have forgiveness, they can have uh, right standing with God through the person work of Jesus. So that we've, we've talked about this, this context of the book of Romans, that is both of these groups of people trying to uh, live out the gospel in harmony. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's clarifying this gospel of what God has been doing and how we have faith in Jesus. And he's wanting to build unity between these two groups because God wants his kids to be together and to worship together. So that's kind of where we pick up this morning towards the end of chapter 11. And so that's what uh, that first verse you've already heard, verse 25, is talking about this. And so Paul already has been specific in the previous verses that he is beginning to address the Gentile believers at this church. And so that is continuing in verse 25. And so this is what he says to them. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness 
of the Gentiles has come in. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse right there. And so if we can just kind of look back at history and try to imagine what is transpiring and going to transpire over these next couple of years. And so I think we probably all have some grasp that uh, Jesus came on the scene in Israel and his ministry predominantly were to his Jewish brothers and sisters, with some notable exceptions. You know, the uh, Samaritan woman that he met with and proclaimed that the salvation of God was coming to people. Uh, but by and large, at this point in history, the movement of Jesus would have been considered a sect of Judaism. And so you get that in the writings from the time. And even uh, the apostles, if you've read through the book of Acts, how they were operating when they were spreading the message of Jesus and going from town to town, they were still going into synagogues and still living out their Jewish heritage, the different festivals and feasts and prescriptions. This was who they were as people. It was part of the Jewish faith, part of the Jewish tradition. But as uh, the ministry of Paul takes off, and as you walk through the history of the Christian movement in the first century, what begins to transpire over time is that more and more non-Jewish people begin to place their faith in Jesus, and that kind of dynamic begins to shift. And so even within uh, the time span of the book of Acts, you see some churches start to arise that uh, are not predominantly Jewish. You think about uh, the church in Antioch uh, that commissioned Paul and sent him out as a missionary. Uh, you think about the church in Ephesus. A lot of these centers where uh, the gospel was taking root and just taking off were in non-Jewish centers. And so as time began to transpire, as the apostles lived out their lives, more and more the Christian Christian movement began to be a non-Jewish movement. And so what historians would point to as kind of uh, a significant factor in history that officially launched Christianity, uh, just sociologically termed like a different religion, distinct and separated from Judaism, was in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. And so in that time, you know, there was the Roman occupation of Israel, of Palestine, and there was the certain Jews who did not want to be under that yoke. So the zealots, they were constantly plotting and trying to overthrow their oppressors. And so around that time, within the time frame of the New Testament, there was actually a rebellion within Israel, and Rome responded by sending in the legions and completely destroying Jerusalem. And so at that moment, because of warfare and battle and all that accompanies it, uh, most of the believers in Jesus Christ left that area. And so that's kind of a significant moment in history that officially launches uh, Christianity as no longer being viewed as a sect of Judaism, but it is its own thing, its own movement. And one of the markers of that is from this point forward, by and large, the people that are following Jesus— uh, the, the church fathers that come after the apostles, the majority of them are not of Jewish heritage, but are of Gentile heritage. And so Paul is writing this instruction to the church, and we can look back in hindsight and see what's going on at the moment, but he's given this instruction to believers, I think, for a specific reason. Because very shortly, it's going to begin unfolding that there are going to be less and less people within the Christian movement that are from the Jewish tradition, from the heritage that Israel had. And so, once again, 
because we're people and because we're broken and because uh, things can get out of whack very easily, I think Paul's trying to give some instruction because God knows the unfolding of his plan and what's going to begin to transpire. And so what what does Paul say? Let me read verse 25 again. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Paul's kind of already repeated a warning in this. If you can remember from last week, verse 18 of chapter 11, he, he says something similar, but he says it like this. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I found it kind of interesting when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which once again was in a a Gentile center. It didn't have as many Jewish believers. He includes a similar instruction to them. At the middle of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he gives this reminder. He says, remember that you were once cut off. He said, remember that you weren't always a part of the family of God, that God has brought you in. And I think that's significant. I think that's one of the things Paul is getting at here in this passage. And I do think it is a warning to people, especially to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We should remember that being God's chosen people should result in humility. But if we can look internally, and also what we have seen throughout history is that instead of humility, viewing yourself as a chosen person can more often than not turn to entitlement and a sense of superiority. And I think that's what Paul is warning against for this church in Rome, uh, because God knows what's going to happen, and we can look back in history and see what happened. And so one of the things we've tried to frame the book of Romans, which we think is, you know, accurate to the, the teachings of the scriptures— is that when it comes to us as religious people, over the course of our life, when we encounter disruptions and problems, it's going to be very easy to view that those problems are external to us. But the gospel message is that the problem in the world rests more entirely internally in my own heart and soul. That it's, it's me. I'm the problem. But over time, as life maybe doesn't always go our way, it's going to be easy to project outwardly that all of the problems I'm facing, all of the issues could just be fixed if this person or this group of people or this situation rectified itself. Because I think we're especially prone to do that as religious people because we do view ourselves as chosen by God. And we are chosen by God. But there's an important distinction that Paul has been laying out to the Jewish believers and encouraging uh, the Gentile believers to adopt. And I want us to remember it this morning. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hokey, but I think things stick in our minds. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to the person on your left, and I want you to tell them this. God did not choose you because you are special. Go ahead. Okay, unless we we all get discouraged. Now look to the person on your right and say this. You are special because God chose you. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Paul is trying to get them to look ahead to what is going to transpire 
within their own church. Like I mentioned, there's this significant moment in history of Rome sacking Jerusalem, and that spreads out the Christians all over uh, the Near East and the, the Roman world. And so as Paul is writing to this church in Rome, the church is beginning to multiply. If you know anything about that history, it's a really incredible moment in Christian history because it is multiplying under incredible persecution. And so if you just like go through the histories of all the different Roman emperors, it's like every third one has a significant persecution of the Christians. You know, if like things weren't going well internally in Rome, they're like, hey, how can we garner some popular support? I know, we'll blame the Christians. And so that's what's going on for this church. But it's incredible. God keeps blessing it and they keep multiplying. In fact, it's even while the leaders of the church are, are being martyred. And so we know uh, not long after the New Testament ends, uh, Paul has been in Rome in prison and he gets executed. And it's not that long after that that the apostle Peter gets executed in Rome. And then uh, you get this guy come on the scene named Nero that by all historical accounts was just kind of a, a psychopath. And he starts uh, burning down half the city and blaming that on Christians. And there's this incredible persecution that is heaped upon the Christians in Rome, upon this church that would be reading this letter and encouraging each other to stay faithful to Jesus. And so for about 300 years post-Jesus, the Christians are facing incredible widespread persecution. Sometimes things are going better, sometimes they get ignored, uh, but more and more people keep becoming Christians because the Christians were caring for the poor. They were uh, picking up abandoned babies and raising them as their own. That when the plague struck Rome, they would take in plague victims and care for them. Or they would clear the bodies from the streets because we believe in a bodily resurrection and that human beings are important and they would bury the bodies. And you can see this history play out, both the Christian history and the history of the Roman Empire. And, and so that's what's been transpiring for about 300 years until this guy named Constantine comes on the scene. And he was an emperor that was a bit more partial to the Christians because he had this religious event in his life. And so he began to patronize the Christians, that churches were being built, and, and he began to allow them a, a freedom of expression and religion. And so that led itself up to 313 AD with the Edict of Milan. I hope all of y'all are getting like a world history reminder from back from high school or European history. So Edict of Milan in 313 made Christianity a legal religion. So up to this point in all of Christian history, Christianity was outlawed within the Roman Empire. You could not legally practice your faith until 313 AD. And that's a big pivot because all of a sudden these Christians who had been persecuted and uh, given up to be killed within the Colosseum and they could be taxed relentlessly, all these different things, um, things that had transpired that had also succeeded in spreading Christianity began to, began to shift. And so now the majority of Rome had converted to Christianity. And so they began to receive positions of, of prominence that if you were um, within uh, the religious hierarchy, if you were a bishop, that that began to be a, a position where you could receive a lot of money, that they were patronized by the elites of their society and bigger churches began to be built and more structure came a part of this season of church life and they would have church councils and they, they knew the believers in, in the churches in the other cities. It's a pretty incredible moment in history. And so from Constantine making Christianity legal, 
In 380, a, a different Roman emperor issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which actually made Christianity the state religion. So not only was Christianity legal, now it became the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. And here's a historical fact I've always been struck by. So for about 300 years, widespread persecution of Christians being killed and saying, you know, that's okay, we will lay down our lives for the poor, we will lay down our lives for each other, we're not going to re reject Jesus, and more and more people get saved and experience Jesus Christ. In 380, it becomes the law of the land that everybody is Christian, and in 385 was the first time the church executed somebody for being a heretic. I've always been struck by that. And one of the things I think it does, it reveals our human nature. That when we look outward to the problems of the world, we are neglecting the prime source of the issues in the world, and it's our own hearts that need to be transformed by a savior. And I think this is what Paul is talking to, and why he is also saying, just a few verses previous, do not get arrogant towards the branches. Because in this historical moment, and in, in, in post that moment in 385, if you know kind of the rest of European history, Christianity continues to spread all over the continent of Europe, and churches get established, and it becomes a, a, a credible moment for the gospel to spread. But one of the things that is marked throughout the Middle Ages of that history is also a widespread persecution of Jewish people in the name of Christianity. And so if you've read that period of European history, there are a lot of the cathedrals that were built throughout Europe that are beautiful and incredible places to visit. A lot of times those were being built by extorted money from Jewish people, and they began to be persecuted all over Europe. Um, in fact, when I was, you know, just kind of doing uh, some research for this, you know, I just kind of went on YouTube and, and put in, like, how do Jewish people view Christians? And even today, within, you know, Jewish belief, uh, Jewish uh, Israelis within their homeland, as they look back on the, the history of their people from Jesus on, a lot of those markers still are how their people were persecuted and pushed around Europe and exploited throughout the centuries by people who claimed Christianity. You had movements within Europe of, of, of blaming the Jews for murdering Jesus. You know, even the term, uh, you know, the passion uh, that was used, there were passion plays in Germany that um, uh, highlighted that it was the Jews that killed Jesus and they rejected God and now it's these other people who have accepted God and they've begun to view themselves in a position of superiority. It's a pretty amazing thing that is revealed about us as people whenever we get any type of position or prominence. But what does Paul continue to say about God's unfolding of salvation history? Verse 26 says this. He says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so what, one of the things that's been highlighted through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that God does have this plan for his people. And that 
all people have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ, but God's unfolding of his salvation work, both for the Jewish people and for non-Jewish people, is continuing to unfold even to this day. And so we've tried to frame these chapters, starting back in chapter 9, that Paul is coming from this position of compassion that he wants his brothers and sisters, his Jewish family, to know the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And so he's explaining this salvation work God is doing, but it's in the backdrop of a conviction and a compassion that all people would come to faith. And so we see that even in Romans chapter 10, that he explains how that happens, that people hear the word of God and faith wells up in their heart and, and, and that's how God brings them into salvation. And so uh, this is a continuation of all those thoughts. And so as we get into chapter 11, I just see this warning in there because we've talked about that, like we want to have compassion for those that we love that they would place their faith in Jesus. And now I think the warning is for both us as individuals but then also collectively as groups of people, as the people of God, there is this reality that communities of faith or us as individuals can grow hard, grow callous towards people or groups who don't respond the way we wish they would. We have the ability over time to grow cynical. And I think that's prone to us even as religious people that we can start to view ourselves as superior because maybe we do keep the moral precepts a little bit better than some of the other groups culturally around us or so better than some of the other people we encounter on a daily basis. We see that God has done this transformative work in our lives. Like our, our families are a little bit stronger. We're a little bit more self-disciplined. We uh, give a bit more charitably than other groups of people. And so we can begin to view ourselves as superior to others. And when we do, it does have an impact on how we interact in the world around us. We can grow cold to those we view as outside. There's this um, Twitter page I used to like to follow called the Church Curmudgeon. Um, that just kind of tickled me because I grew up uh, in uh, more traditional Southern Baptist settings, and there was this reality. It was a stereotype that I saw lived out a lot, and probably a lot of people resonate with, is the grumpy old church person. And, you know, the one who's like, hey, you're, you're sitting in my pew, or, um, you know, take your hat off, or the music's too loud, any of those things, because we recognize that over time, we can just get a little cynical towards those who are outside of us. You know, we mentioned back at the beginning of the book of Romans that it has played a, a significant role in a lot of uh, historical church figures in both their conversion and in their ministries. And one of those is, is Martin Luther. And so, big moment in church history, kicking off the Protestant Reformation, he had been reading through Romans and was just convinced that salvation was, um, our justification was by faith alone, and so it kind of kicked off this movement, and, you know, we're even a part of that. We are Protestants by nature because we're not part of the Catholic Church, and so he wrote all these incredible things in expositing the book of Romans so that we could understand it better and understand our doctrine better and our theology better. One of the things I feel like it's, it gets talked about a little bit less, but towards the end of his life, Martin Luther got very cynical. And I think it's partly because he had, 
he had read these scriptures, and I think he, he viewed himself as a part of God's unfolding plan. And so, it, you know, if you read this again with me, this is what Paul says. He said, I don't want you to become, be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Early in Martin Luther's ministry within uh, the German area of Europe, he did a lot of outreach towards Jewish people that were within Germany. But as he got older, his perspective began to change, and he began to get cynical, and he began to get angry, and that led towards near the end of his life, he actually wrote a booklet that was published within Germany called The Jews and Their Lies that was incredibly anti-Semitic and ended up being picked up by Hitler and used as a justification for some of the changes that went on within Germany. We have the ability, if we begin to view ourselves as superior, to grow hard towards people God has called us to love and have compassion on. I love the story of the church in Ephesus. I mentioned it, that it also was in a non-Jewish area. And so in the book of Acts, uh, we get this, uh, just this blow up of the church in Ephesus that these believers are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and it's changing their whole city, that people are no longer buying idols. And so these whole industries that were promoting the worship of false gods are beginning to fail. And then Paul writes to this church and it's just an incredible encouragement letter, um, the book of Ephesians, it's pretty uplifting. It's not like Corinthians where they were just messing it all up, like Ephesus was doing a good job. And he's encouraging to, you know, kind of keep up the good work. And he does include that reminder, like, remember that you were once on the outside. We don't know what happens in between that time, but between the book of Ephesians and the book of Revelation is about 40 years. And something transpires in that church in that time. Because in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes this proclamation to seven different churches, and Ephesus is included in that. And what he says about the church in Ephesus, it says, you've stood on doctrine, but you have neglected the love you had at first. And he says, because you have neglected that, unless you repent and change and have the love you had at first, you're in uh, risk of no longer be con being considered a church of Jesus Christ. We have this ability to grow cold over time without the work of the Holy Spirit to keep us soft and compassionate and not puffed up with our religion. I think one of the things that can happen to us as people is that we can kind of become like Plato that's gotten left out. This happens a lot in my house right now, so the metaphor made sense in my head. That Plato has this usefulness, it's moldable, it can take different shapes, it can accomplish different things in the hands of its molder, but if you leave it out over time, it grows hard, and then it becomes brittle, and it breaks apart, and it's not good for anything anymore, and you throw it away. I think that's what Paul's warning against to this church in Rome, and a warning we should take to heart, that as we follow Jesus, ideally over a long, long time, that we are going to be at risk to grow cynical and cold towards people who do not respond the way we wish that they would. And we need the work of God to help us remember that God did not choose me because I'm special. I'm special because God chose me, and that should promote humility in my own life. This is what Paul says about God's unfolding history in verse 28. It says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, 
For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. One of the things I just find amazing about the scriptures in general is how God always uh, works kind of contrary to my own human nature. And one of the ways I see that is as he unfolds his salvation in different ways, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, God has this incredible means of using something that appears negative to accomplish something amazing for his glory. So think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament when he confronts his brothers and he, he declares it. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. It's this foreshadowing to the cross of Jesus Christ that people uh, took Jesus into their own hands and murdered him, but God used that to accomplish the salvation of the world through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying is happening with the Jewish people. He's saying there is this hardening that has come upon them. And there's just a reality. Once again, if we look back at history, it is, it is rare that someone comes from a Jewish heritage, a Jewish faith, and places their faith in Jesus Christ. That's just a historical reality. It does happen, and Paul's already talked about that God's promises are still for his people because he is a Jew and he's been brought into the family of God. But we just see that there is this hardening, and God's talked about it right here within his word. And he's saying, He's going to use that so that others will come to faith in Jesus. And when others come to faith in Jesus, there is going to be this season and time that that reality are going to bring Jewish people back to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God works in mysterious ways. But there is this whole theme to what Paul is saying. Back in verse 25, he mentions that this is a mystery that God's unfolding of his history, that we do get some broad strokes. And that's what Paul's saying. It's good for you to know this and to understand this. So I, he's saying, I want you to be aware of this or else you're gonna think you are the chosen people that are just the best and everybody else messed up before you, but you've got it figured out. He's saying, no, like there's this thing God is doing in the world. And if you can kind of keep that in front of you, uh, the things that God has revealed, it should both keep you humble and it should keep you trusting in God. And so he is pointing towards this season that I personally don't believe has, has happened yet. You know, I think there is some mysterious language. He's saying this hardening has come on until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not sure exactly what that means. There's different ideas of that. But then he's saying he's going to use that to, to bring Jewish people back to faith in Jesus. I think that, that season is coming at some point in the world's history. And so it can be easy in this conversation as we start to look ahead and we look at kind of some of the prophetic words that have been spoken in the scripture and there's different theological positions on how kind of the rest of history is going to go. You know, a lot of times we, we look at the book of Revelation and we speculate about all that prophetic imagery and what's happening around here and around there. And it can be easy to kind of fixate on that as well. I remember uh, one of my last years being the, the youth pastor here, we were doing the, the church camp thing um, which I always had kind of a love-hate relationship with church camps. Can be incredible. I would always get grouchy and sick by the end of it. It was kind of a mixed bag. But I remember when the last camps I did, I hadn't been super happy with the camp speakers a couple years in a row. Uh, just had my own opinions on what would be the best things of God to promote to teenagers. But this one camp speaker, I, I thought he had done a really good job uh, the whole camp. 
Uh, but then we get to the last night, which if, if you know anything about church camp, that's like, let's all rededicate our lives and confess our sins night because we're all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Uh, but we get to the last night of church camp. It's like the last session. And he does his whole sermon on the end times, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, not only just some of the things it says within the scriptures about what's coming ahead, but then he also begins to kind of pick out news stories and compare them to the Bible. And so if you've been around the people of God, Christianity, the church for a while, there is this reality that every generation thinks that Jesus is returning in their generation. Because there's this cyclical nature to history. And there are these markers within the scriptures of, hey, this is going to happen. These things are going to happen. Um, and then the end's going to come. And so for generations, as faithful followers of Jesus, eagerly awaiting his return, sometimes it can be easy to begin to see some of the news stories and be like, well, that kind of sounds like a little bit of that passage I read, and, and start attaching them. So that's what this speaker did. He's like, yeah, you see that, see that earthquake in Indonesia, and you see in the Bible where it says there's going to be earthquakes? And so that was how our last night of camp went. And so we like left that moment, and then I had our kids together, and then I had to talk them all off the edge for 30 minutes as to why I don't think the earth's going to end in the next couple of years. But there is this reality that God has granted to us some of the broad strokes of how his history is going to unfold. There's going to be ups and downs for Jesus's church, and that's clearly portrayed within the scriptures, and so we got to keep that in mind and uh, not be too doomsday-oriented because we know that although things might seem out of control, they're within the control of God. And I think we can look back on, on, on how God has unfolded his history, and we can see some of these moments that probably were very stressful for the people of God and for the world in general. You know, we already talked about how Jerusalem gets sacked. I'm sure that was a very disorienting time, even for Jewish believers, that their cultural center, their land that God had promised their forefathers just gets completely destroyed. And so then Christianity kind of moves its, its center to Rome, and they go through hundreds of years of persecution, and that's kind of a huge bummer, but God uses it, and then they, they kind of reach this position of prominence, and then they become the official religion of Rome, and that goes on for about another 200 years, and they uh, have a good economy, and uh, the church has a position of prominence, and they get money, and they build cathedrals, and all that's really good, and then Rome falls, Rome gets sacked after 3,000 years of being the dominant empire in the world. It completely gets destroyed. And then the, the church is splintered and people are refugees and thrown without Europe. And this has just been a reality of how the history of the world has been unfolded. And there have been some up moments and some down moments. And um, there's been moments of just like global upheaval that has happened for people throughout all time. I mean, you can think about World War II and, and the Holocaust and then uh, the Cold War that came after that and the threat of nuclear war. Paul is saying that we don't need to be unaware of how God is going to draw history to its redemptive conclusion. But the result Paul is advocating for is a humility and trust that God has it under control. And that's what he says towards the end of the chapter. As we already mentioned, he talks about how he can use these negative things for his glory. And then verse 33, as Paul concludes these ideas, he says, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or to who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is going to continue his salvific work throughout the course of history, and we get to be partakers in it in whichever season God has allowed us to live. And we need to remember that both for the sake of our compassion towards those who are outside the Christian faith, but also our confidence that no matter what transpires in the time we've been granted to live, God is in control. So here's what I want you to hang on to this morning. No matter what transpires in the news or what moment in history we get to live through, the reality of God's saving work and his control over the earth he created is that God's purposes will always stand. And one of his purposes is that all people have access to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Gentile, God will have mercy on all who turn to Jesus. And this has always been his plan, and it should have a, uh, just an anchoring point in our soul. We should have confidence in this. Paul declared through the, uh, I'm sorry, God declared through the prophet Isaiah in 46.10 says this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Psalm 33, 11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19, 21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God, at some point when it is right to him, will bring the history of this reality to a conclusion with the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I believe many people will place their faith in the risen Lord that is Jesus. And until that day comes, I want to have a compassion in my heart to say soft and moldable to the things of the Holy Spirit and a conviction that all people will have the ability to place their faith in Jesus and that God has chosen his church as his chosen instrument to promote his message in the world. We should have this confidence in our souls. I love how Paul concludes this because sometimes when you hear some, some interesting things in scripture or some things that might be harder to internalize, you kind of ask yourself, like, what is the appropriate response to the message of God? And I love that the appropriate response, even if we don't understand all of the mystery he has proclaimed to us, is worship. And that's where Paul lands this thought because he's about to transition and begin to talk about application in Romans chapter 12. But uh, these three chapters unfolding God's salvation plan, this is how Paul declares it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is my prayer for us as a church family as we hear the word of the Lord and maybe some sits heavy on our heart or maybe some of it just leaves a question mark as to what all these things mean. May we respond and place our focus on where all focus is due on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you that history is under your control. 
God, that there will be ups and downs. God, that the arc of redemption is long, God, but we can have confidence that you will bring it to conclusion. God, that we are going to see seasons where many people turn to Jesus, God, and we're going to see seasons where cultures and people grow cold to the things of God. God, let our hearts be steady, that your purposes will stand. Your purpose to show mercy on people because of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for the mercy I have received. God, help me to not forget that I am an object of mercy. Oh, wretched man that I am, God, that you looked at my messed up heart and loved me enough to die for me and to bring me into your family. God, let me not forget that no matter how many years I claim Jesus as Lord, no matter what happens in life. God, help me remember that I was once separated. I was on the outside looking in, but Jesus made a way for me. God, keep us tender, keep us moldable by your spirit. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.